It's great being with you this morning, and it's been wonderful getting to know many of you for the past couple of months. And uh, for the last couple of weeks, Eric has been in this series on Jude, and uh, because of that, he's been living in the letter of Jude for the past couple months, whereas I have been living in the gospel of Mark, and I don't want to start anything, but I think it's because, you know, I love Jesus more, but... Uh, So if you have your Bibles, we will be in Mark chapter 9, verse 2. Uh, I want to begin this morning with something I think we can all agree upon, which is this. Knowledge does not mean understanding. Just because you know something doesn't mean you understand whatever it is you claim to know. Uh, this is typically embodied by those people in our lives that, you know, just don't get it. I wonder, when, as I say this, if some of you who are married want to start nudging your spouses. Uh, for those of you who are married, uh, on your wedding day, did you fully understand the depths of the commitment you were getting yourself into? I mean, you certainly knew you wanted to get married to the person, to whoever you're married to. But I I would presume you didn't have a good understanding of what that meant until, you know, how many ever years later. Uh, Another example of this is this weird, peculiar story I heard the other day on one of my favorite podcasts. It's a peculiar story about a cancer surgeon and his patient. You see, the patient was at the end of his his rope due to this massive tumor he has on his body, but somehow he gets connected with this cancer surgeon who not only successfully removes this massive tumor on his body, but after five years of remission, this patient was deemed fully healed. And so, upon one of his last visits to his doctor, he says, look, doc, I would not be here today if it wasn't for you. So please allow uh, my wife and I to take you and your wife out to dinner as a thank you for saving my life. The doctor thinks to himself, why not? I mean, who doesn't like a free meal, says the Highland Church of Christ preaching apprentice. But... Anyway, Friday evening comes around, they go to this nice, expensive restaurant, and they have this wonderful time until the waiter hands the patient the bill, and the patient looks at the bill, then looks at the doctor, looks at the bill, looks at the doctor, looks at the bill, looks at the doctor, and about the fourth or fifth time he does this, the doctor suggests, shall we split the ticket? And the patient replies, yeah, I think that'd be great. Unbelievable, right? He, he cured, number one, this doctor cured the guy from cancer. Number two, wasn't the whole meal about thanking the doctor? So the patient had this def, knows the definition of gratitude, but his failure to pick up the tab reflects a wider lack of understanding what it means to be grateful. Knowledge does not mean understanding. 
And this is exactly how we should think about the disciples' frame of mind as we enter into Mark's story this morning. I mean, throughout the first half of Mark, which is about the first eight chapters or so, uh, the disciples' attention has been fixated on everything Jesus does because time after time he demonstrates the impossible. He's he's throwing out demons, he's curing the sick, he's walking on water, he's feeding the thousands, and with a single command, he's calming raging seas. So if you're a disciple, the only thing you could probably conclude is that this guy is the son of God. And this is only confirmed even more by the events on the mountaintop. So let's read our story this morning. The word of the Lord. Six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and brought them to the top of a very high mountain where they were alone. And he was transformed in front of them, and his clothes were amazingly bright, brighter than if they had been bleached white. Elijah and Moses appeared and were talking with Jesus. So Peter reacted to all of this by saying to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let's make three shrines, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He said this because he didn't know what else to say or how to respond, for the three of them were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice spoke from the cloud, saying, This is my son, whom I dearly love. Listen to him. Suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. So, our story begins with Jesus taking Peter, James, and John on a climbing expedition. And throughout the wider Christian tradition, many ancient authors uh, latched on to this image of ascent, of climbing upward, as a way to describe our own journeys with God, our own pursuits in becoming more like God. In fact, we still use this climbing and mountaintop metaphor as a way to describe our spiritual lives today. For example, sometimes during the 222 group or the young adult group that meets on Wednesday nights at Alex Guy's house, um, we sometimes use this image of peaks and valleys and highs and lows as a way to enter into those spiritual conversations. Uh, You could probably even recall a time when you used this imagery in a conversation with one of your spiritual friends or mentors. So, for example, you know, Eric comes to you and asks you, well, how's your soul doing? How's your walk with Jesus doing? And you say, well, I just got back from Winterfest and I just feel like I'm on the mountain with God. Especially after hearing Breeshan lead us in Just As I Am a thousand times. Whenever he sings that song, I just experience his glory. The his glory, by the, re- by the way, is not a reference to Brecian, but <laughs> A few months later, Eric comes to you and asks you, how's your soul doing? How's your walk with Christ doing? Well, I just, I feel like I'm in the valley. Me and Jesus aren't really tight right now. So this image of mountaintops and valleys is a very common metaphor we use to, to, to depict our spiritual lives. And I wonder, I wonder, 
This is how Peter would describe his relationship with Jesus after he finished the climb with the other two disciples. I mean, they just witnessed this extraordinary, mind-boggling event where Jesus transforms before their very eyes. It says that his clothes became amazingly bright, brighter than if they had been bleached white. The disciples were able to catch a full glimpse of his glory. To add another layer to this spectacular event, Moses and Elijah appear and begin having this sort of divine dialogue with Jesus. And to put a cherry on top, this cloud overshadows them and this voice emerges from the cloud as God the Father bears witness that this is his son whom he dearly loves. Peter James and John experienced Christ's glory on the mountaintop. Now, this experience of glory is clearly a once-in-a-lifetime kind of moment, especially for Peter. So what does he do in this once-in-a-lifetime kind of moment? Well, Mark tells us that he reacted to all of these things uh, by saying, Jesus, let me build three shrines for you, one for you, Moses, and Elijah. For he didn't know how else to respond. In other words, Peter puts his foot in his mouth. Have you ever put your foot in your mouth? Uh, this reminds me of a friend of mine in college, but I'm about to tell a kind of an embarrassing story about him, so I need to protect his name. Let's call him Chase. Okay, just kidding. Chase is his name. So... <laughs> Uh, this is a story about my buddy Chase who put his foot in his mouth. Well, because you see, Chase is, was born and raised in Dallas, who, uh, which means he's a proud city boy. And so in college, he was invited to our mutual friend's farm, which is in the middle of nowhere, Texas. I would be more specific, but given that Texas has a lot of middle of nowhere places, it doesn't really matter. But... Uh, uh, but upon, upon arriving at the farm, uh, this sweet family takes this group of friends on the tour. They go and uh, uh, walk around their field. And, and as Chase is going through this entire experience, he's just bedazzled. And his bedazzlement is magnified even more uh, during dinner where, you know, he has this nice home-cooked co home meal uh, that was made in the oven and with lots of loving uh, it was, a, it was a glorious meal. And as they were wrapping up dinner, Chase has that look on his face that some of your kids might have when they're at dinner. You know, they want to ask you a question, but they're unsure of whether or not they should ask it. Well, so does Chase. Chase has this look, and he decides to proceed anyway. And he ends up saying something like, so uh, how do y'all, you know, farm bread What? You know, how do you uh, get the crops and make it, you know, the bread and all fluffy and stuff? So, okay, point is, 20 minutes of this kind of questioning, Chase doesn't know how bread is made. <laughs> That's the whole foot in his mouth business. And even though Peter probably knew how bread was made, he nevertheless puts his foot in his mouth when he addresses Jesus as rabbi, which means... 
Now, to be clear, Jesus is certainly a teacher. So please don't tweet, Facebook, Instagram, whatever, that the preaching apprentice at Highland Church of Christ doesn't believe that Jesus is a teacher. He's clearly a teacher, and that wouldn't look good because I'm trying to get a job right now. So, um, But would you address Jesus as a teacher after witnessing this glorious event on the mountaintop? I mean, wouldn't you say something similar to like doubting Thomas, who after putting his hands in the wounds of Christ, he just, the only thing he has left to say is, oh Lord, my God. What Peter's address of Jesus, when Peter addresses Jesus as rabbi, it subtly reveals his wider lack of understanding of Christ's identity. Peter sees Jesus just as another teacher or prophet, just like Moses and Elijah. However, that's not the reality of the situation, right? Christ is not on the same level as Moses and Elijah. In fact, Christ surpasses Moses and Elijah because as those prophetic figures fade away, Christ remains. Christ also surpasses Moses and Elijah because, you know... He's God's son. But for whatever reason, Peter and the rest of the disciples just don't get it. Knowledge does not mean understanding. But praise God that we don't need to know everything about Jesus in order to experience his divine glory on our mountaintops. I remember the day when I had my own spiritual summit with God, and I will never forget it. It was this glorious moment where, by the grace of God, I was able to connect my adoption with being adopted into the family of God. I'll never forget it. The only response I had was an overflow of tearful joy. Perhaps your story's similar, right? And whenever we get a glimpse of what it means to be loved by God, forgiven by God, empowered by God. We experience his divine glory. So, is there a problem here? Well, I don't think there's any problem in climbing up a mountain. Or, and there's certainly not a problem with experiencing our own mountaintops. The problem is, we never want to leave. So let's continue with our story. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them not to tell anyone what they had seen until after the human one had risen from the dead. So they kept it to themselves wondering, what's this rising from the dead business? They asked Jesus, why do the legal experts say that Elijah must come first? He answered, Elijah Elijah does come first to restore all things. Why was it written that the human one would suffer many things and be rejected? In fact, I tell you, Elijah has come. But they did to him whatever they wanted, just as it was written about him. So as they descend down the mountain, as they're going down the mountain, Jesus tells his disciples to keep what just happened a secret. And this isn't the first time Jesus tells his disciples to hush up. I mean, six days earlier, or in the previous chapter, Jesus gives his disciples the same order. 
because they were not getting it. And this, this must have been so frustrating for Jesus, right? Because he started clearly and plainly telling his disciples, look, I will be rejected, I will suffer, and I will die. But don't worry, death doesn't have to find a word. I will rise again after three days. Yet to no avail, right? They still don't get it. And especially Peter. I mean, Peter was the one who uh, knows who Jesus is. In fact, he was the one who identified Jesus as the Christ. But upon hearing Jesus doing all this crazy talk about suffering and death, he decides to set his story straight. So he begins to rebuke Jesus. In, in, in some translations, it says scold Jesus. And he scolds Jesus so bad that Jesus ends up calling him Satan, the personification of evil. So, as they go down the mountain, it's pretty clear that Peter, James, and John have not made much progress in understanding who Jesus is really is, despite knowing that he is the son of God. Despite everything that has, hap has happened, despite what Jesus clearly says to them about himself, the nature of his identity, despite his transformation on the mountaintops, despite God himself bearing witness through a cloud that this is his son, they still don't get it. Perhaps this is why God not only identifies Jesus as his son, whom he dearly loves, but also implores the three disciples to listen to him. Pay attention to not only what my son does for you, but listen to what my son expects of you. For if you are going to follow Jesus Christ, if you are going to follow the son of God, the incarnation, this word who became flesh, this man who was fully human and fully divine, this guy who was all good and all knowing and all powerful, this guy who can heal and cure the sick, this man who can walk on waters, this guy who can throw demons out of people, this man who with a single command, calm, raging seas. If you're going to follow that guy, then that entails not only following him up the mountain to experience his divine glory, but it means following him all the way down, down into the valley of rejection, down into the valley of suffering, down into the valley of death. You see, I think we need to redo how we understand and use this image of mountaintops and valleys. For whenever we use this image, it's implied that we need to avoid the valley as much as we can, right? Because the valley is associated with rejection and suffering and death. But Mark's whole point is that is exactly where Jesus is calling us into. So whoever wrote that song, go tell it on the... <laughs> yeah, classic. We love that song, right? I like it too. However, whoever wrote that song has it all wrong. Jesus, following Jesus does not mean perpetually dwelling on the mountaintop to proclaim good news. 
following Jesus means following him all the way down to the very depths of the valley to be good news. Last week, Eric made this critical point on holiness. That if we want to, deter- if we want to determine what holiness might mean, then we need to stop playing this game of comparing ourselves to others, whether we are moral or immoral exemplars, because the moment we start doing that, we miss the point. Instead, we need to look at God, who is in his very essence, Holiness. And part of what it means to follow Jesus down to the valley means pursuing a life of holiness, a life that purifies, a life that moderates and guides the way we live into our desires, the way we use our power, and where we focus our attention. So our problem, I think, isn't that we lack knowledge of Christ, Our problem is that we stop short at pursuing a deeper understanding of who Christ is and where he bids us to follow. Perhaps it's because we don't think we'll ever get to know enough, right? Why try when we will never know fully? But that's, my friends, we'll never know enough, right? The call, but even though we'll never know fully, the call of the Christian is to understand deeply. For what else is faith but seeking understanding of how wide and long and high and deep is the love of God? And to understand deeply means paying attention not only to what Christ does for us, but entails listening to what Christ says to us. Or just as he says, all who want to come after me must take up their cross, deny themselves, and follow. So we head into the valley. And to be clear, we don't head into the valley uh, because our hope is in the valley. We head into the valley because our hope is in the one we follow into the valley. Our hope is in the one who suffered under Pilate, was crucified on the cross, and died. Our hope is in the one who did not remain dead, but after three days rose from the grave. In other words, and as concisely and to the point as I can say it, our hope is in the risen Christ. Our hope lies in that age to come where at his name everyone in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And it's on that glorious day when we will no longer see through a glass darkly, we will no longer know in part, but we will see God face to face. And in eternal bliss, forever praise God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we'll all say, amen.